0: Hey everybody, and welcome to the Darkcast. I'm your host Jonathan, and this is DCI number 135. In this episode, Brian and I talked to Ben Droste of 100 Stones Interactive to talk about his first game, Eyes of Aura. Eyes of Aura was kickstarted about a year ago and was just released. It's a 3D adventure puzzle game uh, that most uh, closely resembles Myst on the surface level. For more information on the game, you can check out the links in the show notes to this episode on DarkStation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. Thank you so much for joining us on the Darkcast. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well, actually. Yeah. That's, I that's finally good. had some time to actually sleep since the game's come out. It's been great. <laughs>
0: hey!
1: You always sleep. do that.
0: That's, that's amazing. How's, how's that been? Like, uh, do you feel healthier? Or is it one of those things where you just, like, you've weaned yourself <laughs> off sleep, where now it's just, you're just laying there. It's like, man, I don't know, like, do people just, like, fall asleep? How, how does this work? <laughs> Don't take drugs.
1: Uh, yeah, the, the last <laughs> few months leading up to the launch was grueling and so was the, probably the week afterwards, which is actually a week now. Um, really really busy, so it was good to actually get to go to bed in a reasonable hour for once the last couple of nights and yeah, not wake up feeling exhausted already.
0: <laughs> awesome very awesome well obviously we are here to talk about your new game uh eyes of ara but before we get into that let's talk a little bit about who you are uh you are a one-man studio working on this game so that sounds incredibly daunting um and like super impressive because a lot of times when we talk to people who are making one-man games it's like you know pixel art and stuff but like this this
1: game looks good oh thanks um yeah, it was a big task. It certainly was. Um, I I did it almost as a challenge to myself to see if I could do it by myself. Hmm. Uh, that, that said, I did get help, of course. It wasn't done entirely by me. The sound of the music was outsourced to some other artists. And I had help in other areas uh, with friends here and there. But it was yeah, predominantly my own work. Um, I conceived the game. I designed it. I developed it, coded it, did all the art, um, did all the marketing, ran the Kickstarter, did... Pretty much everything apart from the audio. Um, and yeah, here it is.
2: Awesome. Was it a challenge to find out just how much you hated yourself, or was there something more involved? <laughs> <watch? laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it was a challenge to see if it could be done, I suppose. Um, I kind of knew the scope I wanted, even though it blew out so, too much larger than that. But uh, I wanted to know, as an artist with no programming experience, would I be able to make a game on my own, given where the tools are today? on how far they had come. Um, And also, I I wanted to get experience in every other area of games development. Um, Not to increase my chances of being employed or such, but more of a, I wanted to understand what everyone else in games had to deal with in their department so I could work better with them in the future. Especially if I collaborate in the future with other people, I'll be able to speak their language better.
0: Sure, yeah, makes
2: sense. So that he, is the that is the noblest of causes in like doing pulling off the one man show, just like oh you know, I just wanted to make sure that I could work with other people. alright. that's that's actually kind of fantastic.
1: That's part of it. The other part was I wanted to do it by myself and see if I could. Yeah, and make my own game. I had full cont- creative control over, which was a lot of fun.
2: That's sure Did the did the lack of sleep ever uh, lead to you arguing with yourself? <laughs>
1: Maybe towards the end, yeah. but I didn't have much time for that towards the end either. You don't uh, no, I worked, I worked to pretty reasonable through most of the development. I um, basically worked an eight-hour day, maybe a little longer at times, um, and then it was only the last few months when the deadline was looming, and I started to really hit crunch and had to work um, very ridiculous hours to get it finished. Yeah. Most of the time it was, uh, yeah, pretty reasonable.
0: So before the insomnia had set in, you were you were lucid. <laughs> sure, sure, why not um, So you, you mentioned that you're an artist by trade So had you did you have any programming experience going into this?
1: I had done uh, one semester back at university uh, That, I didn't really understand it I passed, though I'm not really sure how um, So I thought, this is not for me, I don't like programming, I can't do this but then when I came to make the game, it was scary and daunting. But then once I got into it, it turned out to be not so bad. I actually picked it up really easily. And I found it was probably just the way it was taught to me was not ideal for me. Um, and the tutorials I did this time around, um, just they spoke to me in a way I could understand it. And I picked it up a lot easier. And it turned out to be a lot less scary than I thought it was going to be, which was really nice. So I was able to do most of the programming uh, myself without too much assistance. Uh, had to get help from friends with a few areas. Uh, use the extensive uh, community for Unity uh, for support where I needed it. And then there's Unity Asset Store as well, uh, the Unity Asset Store. So any complex systems which were well out of my league as a newbie programmer, I could buy them off the Asset Store, implement them, and then just edit them as best I could for my needs. So yeah, the tools were there, really, which is what enabled me to do this. And one of the reasons I decided to do it by myself was because I thought the tools were at a stage now, um, that engines and the asset store and the community support and all that sort of stuff is at a level where someone with very little experience in certain areas can make up for that inexperience through all these all this support and tools.
0: Very cool. What kind of stuff did you actually have to um, go out and, and buy?
1: Um, it was mostly programming systems. So I bought a visual scripting tool, uh, which enabled me to do a lot of the game systems without having to touch any code. Hmm. So it's kind of like, um, if you've ever watched the videos of Unreal with the Blueprint system or something, where they sort of string up nodes together to say, when X happens, go to Y. When this condition's met, go over here, play this animation, that sort of stuff. So I use that for a lot of the core systems, and then I use my program knowledge on top of that to edit it and do some more specific stuff that that tool couldn't do. And as the game went on, and as I got more programming experience, I found myself writing more code myself and using the tool less. Um, In addition to that, I got the input system for the basic camera movement, I got the the UI system, not the art, the art was all done by me, but the um, the code behind it was largely a system I bought off the store, and then I just edited, it, edited the code where I needed to make it specific to my needs. So a lot of those core systems, which is kind of generic and used in every single game, there's really no point in rewriting them again. Um, you can just buy, and there's great quality ones out there, which really sped the development along.
0: Very nice. Cool. Um, was there anything in particular that helped you with, uh, like, besides just the, the community that's out there, were there any tricks or anything like that that you learned? Because uh, you mentioned when you were taught it in university that it, it didn't click well. It wasn't kind of a good way for you to be taught. Was there, was there anything new or tricks or tips that you would want to pass on to anybody else that, you know, was intimidated by coding?
1: Um, I would just say try and find a bunch of different tutorials, I suppose, if you haven't done it before. Um, try one. If it doesn't work for you, try another one that explains it slightly differently. Um, that's really all it came down to for me, is that I'd happened to hit on one first up that that spoke to me really well. And hmm. have uh, since found other ones where I was looking for solutions to something. I didn't understand it at all. Hmm. So it's, yeah, it, I can't really give you any specific tip other than there's plenty of different ways to explain things on different levels you can dive right down into how the systems work or they can explain it on just a top level and say if you do this code it'll work. You don't know why but it'll work. Um, that's not <laughs> ideal I don't think but um yeah I guess it's best when you're starting out just to find something that you can understand and work from that and then branch out from there I suppose. Okay. Very cool.
0: Now, you've worked on a number of games uh, before launching into uh, 100 Stones Interactive. Uh, what are some of the other projects that people might recognize your your work from? Uh,
1: most recently, I worked as a level designer on Satellite Rain, which is the like a spiritual successor to Syndicate. So that was a Kickstarter title. It came out uh, last year. That was done by a bunch of Brisbane guys who I've known for a while now, and I work with them for that. Uh, Before that, I've done a bunch of games, mostly little licensed titles. I did like a remake of Mickey Mouse Castle Illusion. Hmm. I did a couple of Spyro games back in the day and a few other movie licensed titles, um, which people probably won't recognize if I said the name anyway.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Man, Spyro, it's, it's weird to think that there were Spyro games before they started making Spyro toys. Like, that's just, like, that's gotten so crazy in the There's last couple of years. Of I know! Like, I, yeah. I just think of, like, this big gap between, like, original Spyro, like, PS1 Spyro, and then Skylanders. I was,
2: I was actually more but amazed no, that they tried was... to work Spyro into the Skylanders than just have Skylanders by themselves. Sure. Like, tried to pass that know. off as a pure Spyro game. Then.
1: I thought it started out as a Spyro game, but it became far more popular from the Skylanders stuff. I don't know I actually never history behind it.
0: But I've never played Skylander, so I don't really yeah, no, know. The, I just the know there. The first one, like they, they, it was like a
2: Spyro adventure, um, but it was like Spyro's adventure, and then like Skylanders, and so they they had like three or four different Spyros that you could have. But at the same time, it was like you know they clearly wanted it to spread out from that. I'm just amazed that like that was the point that they decided, hey, this is what we're going to build everything off of.
0: Yeah, the first one was Skylanders, Spyro's Adventure Yeah Huh, weird Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about um, <laughs> uh, We're here to talk about Eyes of Aura Which got uh, successfully uh, funded on Kickstarter You have finished the game, it is out People can go mm-hmm. play it But uh, what is it if somebody has never heard of it before? Uh, give us the, uh, the long elevator pitch
1: Long enough image. Well, it's an adventure puzzle game set in an old and supposedly abandoned castle. There's a lot of dark and unsettling rumours about the place and nobody wants to really go inside or approach the castle anymore. But recently a radio broadcast has begun emanating from somewhere within the castle and no one really knows why or what's causing it. And you're you're the unfortunate contractor who's been sent in to discover the source and, if possible, shut it down. So you'll go inside you'll discover the castles not quite as abandoned as you were led to believe, and the game is really about sort of uncovering what happened there in the past and how that relates to what's going on now in the present and sort of discovering the source of the radio signal, shutting it down and figuring out the the truth of the mystery that is slowly revealed as you play the game
0: so would it be fair to if, if somebody had never played a uh, kind of puzzle adventure game before. Uh, would it be fair to describe this as similar to, like, Myst?
1: A lot of people have done that. Um, I, even I did that uh, during a Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Um, it is same genre as Myst, yes. Um, I've tried to capture a similar sort of feeling of, sort of exploration and wonder from the world, but the gameplay is far more modern. I mean, Myst is like 30 years old or something now. Um, the gameplay was designed to incorporate a lot of more more modern gameplay techniques and advances that have come about over the last however many years and give you a very more uh, hands-on sort of tactile feel so it's less about just point and click on random things and hope something happens and more about uh, more immediate obvious puzzles that you have to sort of manipulate so you can drag things around twist things turn things Um, there's more of them they're more obvious and they're a bit more elaborate I suppose so it's a bit more about Solving puzzles which are clearly defined than trying to figure out what the hell's going on, which was sort of missed.
2: <laughs> that is very true like from the outset it was what what is going on here. So the fact that it's a little bit more defined I think actually works in your favor.
1: Yeah, I want it to be more of um, a bit easier to play than this that's for sure. It was it, the tutorial leads you in very directly as here are some very simple puzzles. Here's how you turn stuff. Here's how you pick stuff up and use it, and then you slowly go into larger and larger sort of areas and puzzles as you progress um, until it opens up, like almost the entire level, um, with multiple puzzles and connections. But it's sort of it's designed to lead you in easy, um, so you get a grasp of what you're doing rather than just throw you in blind.
0: How do you go about trying to make puzzles that are you know easy and not necessarily obvious but you know obvious in a way so that you're not just sitting there trying to figure out what the hell you're doing uh, but also then you know satisfying like how I feel like puzzles have to be like one of the most difficult things to do in a game
1: they are they're tricky to get the balance right because some puzzles that you think are really easy some people will find really really difficult and other people will just like breeze past them and say that was way too easy. So it's 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 one of those things where you can't really put a difficulty level in there. It's not like a an action game where you can just increase the damage the enemy does or something. It's like um, your health um, is doubled. It's, yeah, there's nothing that can kill you, but your health is doubled. So this is
0: the easy mode. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So it,
1: designing them really comes down to playtesting. I found I would basically I would uh, build them in grey box format, which is literally just grey. 3D boxes, and then I would get the code in there, get it functionally working, test it out, make sure it seemed fun from what I was doing, and whether I thought it'd be too easy or whatever. Then I'd put it in front of friends to test and see if they could play it. Um, that sometimes is more or less easy, depending on whether the puzzle requires art, whether it plays well enough in just the grey box. Hmm. But often i found that some puzzles need the art in there to inform... Uh, the, where to look, so to speak, where to how the clues are placed around it as to what you need to look for and how where the feedback is so there was that can be deceptive early on. I found puzzles seemed to be far harder than they actually were back in gray box because the the art wasn't in there at the time, and then once the art went in, they became much much easier and I found I had to pull some stuff back out again just to wrap mm-hmm. difficulty back up. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a process of playtesting, I found, to get something that works.
0: So what kind of stuff did you have to remove? Was it just, like, visual clues to try to draw your, your eyes towards what you're supposed to interact with, or what?
1: Yeah, mostly. Okay. So it might be like you turn something, and something lights up to give you feedback that it's in the correct position, um, which might have seemed really, really necessary back when everything was just gray. But then once the art's in there, and they're sort of... Hints that this is the correct position already without something lighting up, you don't need that anymore, and it's just it's too obvious at that point. So you "I'll right, we'll take that back out." Then it's there's it, something that implies it's a correct position, but it may not be obvious. So you kind of have to just sort of uh, go with it and work work on the next part and assume that that's correct because the clues seems to imply that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, that sort of thing. And then the sound effects help as well if you're. If it's not enough, and you don't—if the adding a visual clue is too much, you can always just maybe put in a little click. It's in the right today. position, or something like that.
0: Mhm. Sure.
2: I Is there—is there a version of the eyes of aura like a hardcore version, where you're like, you know what, no art, it's all gray box? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, not since the very early days. Okay. That's a- well, well replaced now. There's no, no yeah.
2: special God code where you're like, yeah, you want it hard? All right, here's hard. Now do it.
1: Now, that would have been a whole lot more work, which I certainly didn't have time for. <laughs> Besides, I'm an artist. I don't want to put in, like, the note art mode. That'd be silly. That, no, that's true. I, I totally understand <laughs> where you're coming It's
2: like, you know, you always, you always get those, the, there's always those one or two people who are like, oh, this is too easy. And you're just like, you know what? Fine. Type this in. Have fun. <laughs>
0: Or just put, like, um, blind person mode in there where everything's just pitch black and you, you're just randomly clicking, hoping things work. Listen to the clicks. Um. <laughs> I do there are people ch- that would figure that out, that
1: everything, but I have to take it out because it was breaking the shaders. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that that can't be fun. Don't no, I want to back in,
1: though, because it was kind of amusing, but I have to fix the shader problems first. But that's a very, very low priority. Sure. With,
2: without spoiling anything, like, Superbag, um, what was your favorite part of the castle design?
1: I really enjoyed the start, the outdoors section. Um, as, speaking as an artist, I've never done a skybox quite like the one I built for this game. It's always been a sort of different technique. This is my first attempt at doing one of the sort, and it's hard to explain without going into specific art Technical details, so I won't bother with that. But so, as an artist, I really enjoyed doing that, just from a technical standpoint, um, from a visual sort of standpoint, and a um, and a sort of design standpoint. I was quite happy with the the third chapter in the game. Actually, um, I just enjoy the um, the aesthetic that I made for that one.
0: What was there anything in particular that you enjoyed about that? That doesn't you know, reveal spoilers or anything?
1: Um, well, the I don't want to say too much because it might be spoilers for some who haven't played the game much before, but there's a the, probably the two last rooms in the third level, particularly the second to last one. Um, I think that came out quite visually pleasing. I'm really happy with the way that turned out. Especially since when I went into that one, it seemed like kind of a daunting task technically. Um, there's a lot of uh, little animations and and technical requirements for the way that, that room functions visually that I wasn't sure I'd be able to achieve um, without some knowledge in shader programming and code, which I wasn't sure I had at that time. But I managed to sort of work my way around it with just art tricks, and it, it turned out really, really nice. And I'm really happy with it. So second to last room in the third chapter, which I won't talk about what it is in case people haven't played it but they don't want to know what it is.
0: <laughs> All right. Fair enough, but pay attention to the second to last room in third chapter. <laughs> um, the the game has I, I guess the strongest uh kind of links to Mist is that one, it's kind of this, you know, abandoned facility that you're going in and so in, in some ways just uh superficially, aesthetically it's it's similar. But then you've also got the kind of um you know, you're planted in, in one location at a time and you're kind of move looking around and, and clicking on different things. Uh, you're not you don't have like one to one movement was that a aesthetic choice was that a technical choice um what Why did you make the game that way
1: um it was a bit of both um, so in part it was to keep the scope down since I was doing it by myself. I wanted to make sure that I made it as manageable as possible and ensuring that the player wouldn't be able to freely move around um, helped a lot with the requirements for the level construction, so all the collision and making sure players don't get stuck on things when they walk around, and all sorts of other QA that would have to be done over that. Um, That was immediately eliminated, which was wonderful. Um, It also meant there's a whole other code area I didn't have to deal with. Um, Artistically, it worked well for the design, I felt, in that it was more about identifying the puzzles and solving them, and less about wandering around trying to figure out what you're doing. I wanted people to kind of like scan the room, um, look for something interesting, and then focus on that. I didn't feel like the actual walking over to it was important. Um, Some people may disagree on that, (laughs) and they have. But I I thought it worked um, just fine as it is, to just sort of um, be in the world looking at it and exploring it visually rather than walking through it. I didn't feel like that was a huge, huge part of it there. But it also allowed me to do some really interesting things with the art and the composition of the rooms. So I could... Because I knew exactly where the player would be at all times, I could design the level art to draw attention to where I wanted the players to look. So I could use things like the direction a table is facing and the rug on the ground and the rafters or whatever to all sort of draw lines towards a certain point. Um, to lead the player's eye over there, I could place a window, sort of on maybe on the other side, shining light on a table, um, or cast a shadow somewhere else to block off an area. And it's all these are all just sort of like basic um, art composition techniques that you would use in painting and stuff anyway. But I could use it in this because I knew the player would always be looking at it from a set position. Then I can use that in designing the levels and leading the player's eye to where it needs to be. Uh, or away from where I want them not to look. If I'm hiding a secret somewhere, I can hide it in, say, a shadow um, in a place with a line, sort of draw your eye in a different direction. So that was really fun, too.
0: Did it affect the the way that you made any of the puzzles? Uh, were there any limitations or advantages uh, besides the kind of visual cues for creating puzzles?
1: Yes, there were some. Um... Uh, because you're in a set position um, everything needs to be seen from that set position so I couldn't hide things say behind a corner because you couldn't get around there which made hiding some things more difficult Um, it also meant that I was limited in the space often that I could place puzzles and if rooms became too large um, everything sort of became too small if it was too far away since you can't walk over to it so, I had to be very smart about how i how efficiently I compacted the puzzles in the rooms and where I positioned them and then I had to get smart about how I hid things, so I started to have to fill up the rooms more with with say tables or things I could hide things like totally partly under or partly behind or in cupboards or secret panels in the walls and that sort of thing so it did it did provide some interesting challenges, but they were fun challenges to solve as well and i think they made a sort of a unique experience as a result. Very nice. Very
0: cool. Uh is there anything in particular that you can talk about the the lore uh besides the fact that you know it's an abandoned castle that you're um investigating is there uh, any particular inspirations for the the story that's um whether you know games or movies or books or anything like that?
1: Uh, There are, but if I were to talk about them, it would spoil it.
0: Okay, Um, fair enough.
1: (laughs) The basic premise of it all, um, as it developed, was to sort of lead the player into believing that something very mysterious has happened here, we don't know really what it is, and I'm getting a lot of conflicting information as to what it might be. So the idea was to sort of um, keep the player guessing and wondering what's going on and leave it to them to try and figure it out themselves and sort of separate the fact from the fiction and discover the truth. So it, it, yeah, I I didn't want to just like spoon feed them a story. I wanted to sort of show how different people all receiving sort of incomplete information might react and might theorize on that. And so you kind of find their notes and scraps around the castle. Um, Even right at the start, the opening few notes you get um, talk about the ghosts that haunt the castle and what happened to the people there and then almost immediately you go in and you'll get other stories which seem to contradict that so it's sort of a you know, what happens when incomplete information reaches you know, the townspeople and goes you know, through whisper to whisper and rumors and rumors and then also sort of gets con- convoluted and, and thrown out of all proportion so I, I thought that was kind of fun
0: sure was um was the story something that you already had in mind or was it something that kind of came to be as you were developing the
1: game A bit of both the plot I had in mind from the start I knew what I wanted the game to be about I knew what I wanted the sort of the main mystery to be how that developed as a story very much developed over time as I built the game because I tried to tell most of the story visually through the environment um, I didn't want to. I wanted to rely as little as possible on the writing. There is a fair bit of writing in there because occasionally you have to tell explicit information, especially when it relates to a clue or something. Um, but a lot of it I wanted to tell through environmental storytelling, which is very much about using the environment itself to convey a sense of emotion, a sense of story, or some sort of some sort of thing that's happened there in the past, uh, sort of a feeling about what sort of people might have lived there and what they did. Mm. So, um, yeah, as as I developed more of the art and where I wanted to take the different characters and ha- who they were, that sort of informed how the story would develop. And so, while well, the plot is essentially unchanged, how the characters um, developed over time and their stories, they, that it developed as the AIM art was developed. Okay. Makes sense.
0: One, I haven't played this far into the game, so I don't know um, how you deal with this, but it, it seems like with a lot of games, when you're kind of discovering a story um, by going into a place, um, it it kind of goes chronologically. So early events happen towards the exterior of whatever facility you're going in, and later events happen towards the center. Um, and I've always thought that that's kind of odd. I think the biggest, or best example is not actually a game, but the movie Slumdog Millionaire, where all of the questions happen in chronological order of the character's life, which I find to be hilarious. (laughs) Uh, How did you deal with making it uh, deal with making the, you know, the further you get in the deeper the story goes and balancing that if that
1: makes sense? Um, Yeah, I do a similar sort of thing where the notes you find later in the game are set later in the timeline, just to keep that sort of straight. Mm -hmm. Um, The basic plot, I want people to have a pretty clear handle on by the end of the game. So that stuff's pretty told pretty straightforward. By the end of the game, you should know essentially what the plot was, what the mystery was, and what happened. Um, What happened to all the characters around that and sort of the wider mystery is not explicitly told in the text. And so that stuff is kind of discovered all over the castle as you sort of piece it together through the art, is, is my hope anyway. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I think to keep it simple, I kept it fairly chronological. I thought the game is, is enough with all the puzzles to keep people confused and guessing. I didn't want to confuse everyone with the story too much. Sure. So I thought if a story is chronological, it at least drives people to continue on to find out more yeah
0: makes sense very
2: cool it does that does that's a good way to handle it and plus I mean, you know it's still kind of, um, kind of not only makes it more understandable it kind of, kind of keeps things like you pushing forward and especially when you're dealing with something where um, you're kind of having to make your own way kind of at your own pace as you're dealing with puzzles to kind of keep that as the driving force is a, is a good thing
1: yeah and especially when people get stuck on a puzzle um, you don't want that to be where they stop playing the game. So having having a story that's progressing um, is often a good motivation to get people to come back, try the puzzle again, and try and solve it just to continue on and find out more of the story. So yeah, the last thing I want is for someone to get to a puzzle and get stuck and go, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm not going to play this anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: Is there any sort of um, hint system or anything like that if somebody is having a, a hard time with the puzzle?
1: Not as such like that. I do have an option which is now turned on by default it was turned off by default, which is a sort of a helper cursor, so that when you mouse over a hotspot, the cursor will change, which will help you identify uh, the various puzzles and secrets, um, which will solve a lot of people's problem with just sort of clicking randomly about the place, which some people really like, but a lot of people don't like that, so that 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 cursor was implemented to help them with that. The actual puzzles themselves, the idea is there is enough feedback in there enough clues and feedback that people can solve it mm-hmm. uh, that's been pretty successful for most of it there's been a bit of trouble on some later in the game which i'm looking at making a couple of patches for to add a bit more in there for that but um otherwise i, I assume people can just go to a guide online if they're really stuck um yeah i mean i, I would have liked to put some got a hint system in there i had one planned but i simply didn't have time to implement it um, everything else was enough work as it was really
0: Sure. Absolutely. Uh now the game was uh successfully kickstarted um what uh, a year ago ish Yeah, just over like a year that?
1: ago. Yeah. I think mean, um, it uh, was funded on the 1st of July or something last year.
0: Awesome. Uh, how did that how did that go? Uh, I know kickstarters can be quite exhausting. What was what was your experience with it?
1: Yes, exhausting is a very good way to describe it. I spent about two months just preparing the Kickstarter, full-time doing nothing but writing the Kickstarter, preparing the videos, preparing the website, all promotion for it, um, uh, getting out to my friends to get feedback, and then redoing it all. And then the Kickstarter launches, and that was a month full-time on just the Kickstarter, and really odd hours too, because of course, I'm based in Australia, the most... The major audience for this is in the US, so my sleep pattern had to adjust to cover kind of both time zones, which was awkward.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That sounds sounds horrendous.
1: Yeah, so it was a lot of late nights and late mornings for me, as it turned out. Um, And then yeah, all my day was just spent promoting it, responding to emails and questions, and yeah, it's just exhausting and grueling process. Um, it's great to get out there and have people responding positively and giving you money for it on essentially a promise that you're going to deliver this at some point in the future um, with no real guarantee of that it's going to happen. I mean, so that's really inspiring to have people put that faith in your project um, which that that's really what keeps you going through Kickstarter, I find
0: <laughs> because everything else
1: about it is just grueling and horrible. Um, so knowing there's people out there that are inspired by what you're doing and want to give you money to help you do it is is really a great thing. Awesome.
0: Uh, So, what what did the uh, Kickstarter actually let you do that you would not have been able to do um, without the backing?
1: Um, Without the backing, I would have had to release the game a lot sooner and a lot less complete. So it probably would have had to cut out one of the environments. There would be a lot less polish over it. I wouldn't have been able to pay for the sound of music. I would have done that myself. And I probably would have had to release a much cut-down, low-budget game, which would have been very, very disappointing. Um, and not something I wanted to do. So it would have been out regardless, because I wanted to finish my game. But I, I, I wanted to do a, a product I was happy with. A product, a product of, of a quality level that I was proud of. Mm-hmm. And I needed the Kickstarter to do that. Because I couldn't... if I had to do the Sound of Music myself or just sort of buy cheap packs offline or something for that sort of stuff it would not have been nice and I wouldn't have had any uh, budget for marketing I would have had to cut some of the art out spend less time on the polish and it just would have been a lesser game. so no, the Kickstarter was definitely a very valuable thing to have
0: Very cool, would it have been something that you would have considered doing in like um, Steam Early Access or anything like
1: that? It's not something that, well, if I didn't get the Kickstarter, maybe, that's all very hypothetical, though. I hadn't really sure. looked on that. Um, There's more of a run the Kickstarter. pretty confident I'll get it, but if I don't, then I'll figure that out afterwards. <laughs> um, but yeah, once the Kickstarter was successful, early access was never really a thought to me. Um, I was already going to do an alpha and beta release for the backers anyway, so I'd already have some people playing it early and giving feedback. Um, and because it's... Well, I assumed it'd be a shorter game. Than it actually turned out to be. It's got a lot more length in there than I thought, which is which is really nice. Uh, but because of that, I didn't want to put out an early access for a game that may not last very long anyway. Sure. I would just put out a finished product um, and have people enjoy it.
0: Sure. Very cool. Well. Um- Ryan, do you have any more questions before we uh, jump into the end game? No, I'm, I'm ready
2: to ready to go. Uh, so we'd like to end the, the, the interview. Wow, hold on. I had a, I had a Monday moment there. We'd like to end the interview with a... Uh... Yes, this is an interview, Ryan. Yes, it is. So. <laughs> oh, man, is it? Okay. No, we'd like to end the interview with a, a bit of a questionnaire. Uh, let's focus more on you um, rather than kind of, you know, like the stuff you did or the, the game that we were just talking about. And so, okay. you know, without gilding the lily, Annie, we'll just jump right in. Um, mm-hmm. Question number one: uh, Who is your favorite video game protagonist? Uh,
1: I I like Samus from Metroid, mostly because of the gameplay, not because of the character, because the character's pretty bland and faceless. But I, 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 I like her range of abilities and how that really ties into the gameplay and level design. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm speaking very much from a level designer perspective here, I suppose. <laughs> that has always totally been from the early Super NES days, which is the first version I played of the Metroid games.
2: Yeah, that's 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 absolutely fair. Uh, flipping the coin, question number two: um, Who's your favorite antagonist?
1: Antagonist. Ah, oh, that's difficult. Um, I really liked. Ganondorf from the Zelda series as a character. I'm um, not sure why he's a pretty one dimensional character, but I guess maybe I just grew up with a lot of Zelda games and really liked them, so he was like, he was the bad guy for me as a kid, so he still always got some sort of mythic status uh, in games to me when I think of the bad guys.
0: Sure.
2: Ganon does that to people. We get the same every so often. We get a Bowser, and that's that tends to be the reason why. It's not that he's a very good bad guy, or even that you know, like he's like done anything really out of the ordinary. It's just that he's been there for so long in so many different kind of ways and directions that you kind of have to
0: respect that.
1: Mm. He was also my favorite character in Smash Bros. Brawl, so maybe that's part of it too.
0: There you go. That works too. <laughs> And I think there's also an element of, like, everybody has their Mario game and their Zelda game. And so you kind of imprint on, like, one version of those characters. But then it just kind of also filters out to love for all the other versions of the character.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Totally.
2: Uh, Question number three. Um, Are there any uh, trends in video games today that um, you'd like to see kind of uh, continue or grow bigger than they are? Uh, something people either may not know about, or you know, may not recognize that you're like, hey, we should be doing more of
1: this. Um, I don't really know. I'm excited to see where VR goes. Hopefully, that takes off enough that it becomes a viable market um, for more developers to dive into it. At the moment, it's still sort of a small market, so you can't justify major projects for it, or if they are, they're sort of like a, a additional feature a main game. Um, but with the rise of indie games over the past few years, um, there's been a lot of unique and interesting ideas um, coming forward. So there's no particular one trend I like other than that indie games as a trend in themselves are really pushing the boundaries of games and exploring a lot of interesting, unique places. So I just, I would like to see that continue more.
2: That's great. Yeah. What do you just on as a side note? Like, what do you what do you think it's going to take for for VR to take off? If it, if you could pin it down to any one thing, is it just it getting out into people's hands, or is there something else that's holding it back?
1: I think the price is the biggest factor at the moment. Um, a lot of people can't afford these generation one kits. Um, uh, I, I would like to say it would take Xbox or PlayStation to ship with VR, um, but they you know they tried that with like the Xbox Connect shipping an Xbox with that, and that didn't take off. So who knows? But then maybe it, it was just the Connect that was the problem, not the VR.
0: I was going to say, like... if if they make it work, <laughs> I think it could be a lot more popular.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a really chicken leg problem. It's it's the, there needs to be an install base of the hardware to justify making games for it. But there's no no one's going to buy the hardware without the games there in the first place. So. But there is a lot of excitement in the indie community um, for VR and a lot of small experimental titles. So there is a growing software base for it, which is great. Um, And the technology is quite good. So I think together it's going to—it's more likely to take off than the Kinect was, or other similar experiments in the past. I think, and especially since VR is a fairly—was not trivial—but you can sort of put a VR mode into any other sort of first person game, either third person games, and have it at least playable in VR, if not made for it specifically, that it there's enough of it there that it can it can leverage that, whereas something like the Connect, you couldn't really put a Connect mode in a game without it being a completely different sort of gameplay. Slapped on top and felt really sort of half hearted. i feel like I'm picking on the Connect here, but I'm sort of using Connect okay. as a stand in for every other peripheral device like that. I don't think anybody's play.
0: gonna Fault <laughs> you for picking on the Kinect. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, Th- so, there was yeah. one
0: good game. It was the one by uh, Double Fine, Happy Action Theater. That was that was the good game for Kinect. Yeah, I didn't even have one. <laughs> That's okay. It's, yeah,
1: um, yeah, yeah I think, I think VR has Kinect. a better chance because you can just put VR mode into a first-person shooter, and then it will play. You'll have to do work. It's not. It's not free. Um, you know, it's not like a developer just slap it in over the weekend. But you know, it, it, it's you can. If you go to the app to put one in there, it'll be playable in VR without feeling like it's just slapped on, like, you know, movement control or something. So that'll help a lot in, in establishing that market.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> Is that something that you would uh, consider putting into Eyes uh, of Vara?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm actually, that's, that's next on the list. Um, oh, so nice. I've had a lot of requests for it, and it's something I've wanted to do. I, I can't promise that I'm actually going to do it. Sure. so I have to uh, first actually put it in, see if I can make it work and if I even if it does work, I have to make sure well, I have to make a lot of design changes to the game to support it as well because some of the ways that the game works on the PC would not work in VR uh, in particular the camera movement um, camera movement in VR, especially when it's not under direct control of the player is often very disorientating and tends to make people sick so I don't want to do that um, so there's a lot of uh, camera cuts that happen when you say when you click on something the camera zooms into it when you solve a puzzle the camera often pan to show what the effect is and that sort of thing like that that is very likely to be very very bad in VR so I have to d- redesign how the interface works for that probably redesign how the actual UI is as well um, to account for a different control scheme because VR headsets tend to take the mouse away from you so it need to be played with a controller instead, which means redefining, uh, redesigning how the input is handled. So it's not a simple process of getting it in there, but it's. Uh, I'll, I'll be certainly giving it a go, and if it works, great. I'll release a VR update, but um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Cool. Very
0: cool. Yeah. That...
2: Flipping the coin. Uh, is there uh, any kind of uh, trope? or uh, something in video games today that you'd like to see there be less of?
1: That's a tricky question. Yes! <laughs> um, I I don't like... This has been going on for a while, though, especially in AAA games. Um, games that take away control from the player or... Meaningful interaction from the player in order to push the story or the spectacle forward. Um, this is particularly egregious in some of the bigger name AAA games, where it becomes almost like a rail shooter. Say where you're basically just along for the ride while stuff happens around you, and you can't really fail. And I think at that point, it no longer. It's more of a. It's more. It speaks more like the designer wants to make a film than a game. So I'd like to see more games that actually focus on actually playing the game, and having a meaningful impact on it, rather than just being along for the ride. Um, but that said, I'm happy for games to experiment in all sorts of different things, and if they work, great, and if they don't, hey, at least someone tried, and now we know.
2: Absolutely, oh, that's 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 very well said. Uh, next question. Um, you know, you're you're making games. You decided to make games the hardest way possible. Um, which was by yourself, um, but if you had the choice and uh, and no um, kind of no restrictions, uh, is there any other profession you'd like to give a go to? Um,
1: I've always really enjoyed games. <laughs> I've known from really young age that I wanted to make video games. I've never really thought about much else. Even when I thought about leaving the industry for a while my thought was to go into um, to academia and, and teaching games. So, it's really? it's never really been a thought to leave games entirely. Huh. So, no, so right. I can't so answer that question. Like, I've never really thought about
2: it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's kind of, like, so it, um, what, what exactly would, since, you know, you don't have anything there, what what exactly would you want to like, kind of teach about games in uh, in academia?
1: Oh, I, I, I would go into, um, teaching design and art, essentially. Not the areas I know and enjoy, I would just you know, <laughs> come and teach
2: That's right. Uh, would they, obviously, you know, uh, Samus and, and Metroid would find a way into your class.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Without question. <laughs>
2: Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, if you got the chance, is, what... Hey, hold on, I'm phrasing this wrong. Um, if you could go back and play any game for the first time, what would it be?
1: That that's difficult because every game I have played I've at one stage played for the first time.
2: Yes. Um. <laughs> that's true. But one that you know, like that kind of means that to you, you know, that if you could go back and just experience that kind of wonder.
1: Um trying not to pick something from my childhood that really impressed me, but wasn't all that interesting. (laughs) Um, Let's say... uh, Mario 64. I'll go with that one, because the first time I played that, that was... I'm not sure it was the first third-person 3D game I ever played, but it was certainly one of the first, and I was blown away by the potential um, of moving into 3D, because... I mean, I grew up in Nintendo games, as you can probably tell. Um, so I played a lot of the SNES-era 2D games. I would played a few 3D games on PC. I never really owned a PC, so it was more of like when I was in a friend's place they I might have had Doom or something, um, which was amusing um, and annoying that my parents wouldn't let me have it. But um, no, when I first played Mario 64 for the first time and sort of got to exploring this amazing... 3D environment and having this complete free range of movement everywhere. And it was such an exceptionally well designed game um, in terms of its uh, controls and hands-on input. Um, it was, the player feedback was so tight, it was amazing. So that feeling was incredible. Um, I don't know, I haven't played it in years, maybe I can go back and play it again and get this feeling again anyway. So, uh, yeah.
2: <laughs> Very true. <laughs> And that game is just like, that was one of those uh, kind of game changers that that they showed not only what was possible but kind of really it led the way going forward as as Nintendo does tend to do every so often. It's like, yeah, hey guys, absolutely. this is this you know this is the new bar. <laughs> and
1: yeah, they do I it on the Nintendo
2: so. sixty four. Like, come on, guys.
1: <laughs> well, that just shows that it's not the technology that's. Oh yeah, that no, kind of totally. It,
2: it is it is the design all the way. But and I think that they if there's one thing that you could take from Nintendo that they've shown over and over again is it's that fact it, it doesn't matter what they're designing on as long as you have kind of people who care and love what they're doing and, and have the ideas to put forward that you could kind of do whatever you want
1: yeah and well I suppose it does the technology to some extent they understand this sort of the new technology they're using it on so in that case yes. it was 3D technology not necessarily the visual fidelity of it um, but and it's the same with the Wii, and they knew what motion control was and what that would mean, and so they designed for that. Um, whereas other people were still trying to figure it out, even though the Wii wasn't a particularly powerful system visually. Um, mm. So it came down to the, it did come down to the technology in its in how it was unique and how to utilize that.
2: Mm. And even even with that, they still managed to find a way to make to kind of you know make beautiful games as a well. You know, those the Mario Galaxies, um, a, a lot of things on there just came out like you know, better than other people were trying to do at that point with what they had.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh,
2: final question. Um, at the end of our lives, when we come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and Dutiful Toad is there with the Book of Our Deeds, uh, what would you like him to say to you before he lets you in?
1: Uh, <laughs> I don't know I haven't thought of that before uh, I've never <laughs> thought about it, it in that's, that's good As um, uh, uh, so long as he doesn't say like Princess in a castle or something Well maybe you should Then send me back keep looking That'll be good, That'll be good. That'll be good again.
2: <laughs> Give you a second chance at it Yeah, yeah, yeah That'll be good there you go, almost like a one-up. <laughs> yeah. Fair <No>. enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Uh, well, that's the end of the end game. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we have no prizes for you, but uh, we do have an awful lot of respect.
0: Uh, Jonathan, why don't you take us home? Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining us to talk about Aizvara. If you could send us out by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more about the game.
1: Sure, you can go to www.eyesofara.com. That's A R A for ARA, or you can go to my Facebook page, One Hundred Stones Interactive, or follow me on Twitter at One Hundred Stones Games.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you once again for uh, for sitting down with us and chatting. And good luck as you work on patches and you know try that whole VR thing and you know get some sleep, man. You've earned it.
1: <laughs> oh, I am definitely getting sleep now.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, best of luck, and uh, we'll talk to you again. You know, when we've got something to talk about.
1: All no right. Thanks for the interview.